0: Well, would you get a Bible this morning and open up to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. We're going to be beginning in verse 30, uh, not 30, 20 today. And as you get there, um, many of you are aware of some of the crazy things that have happened this past week in our country. Um, And I want to highlight two, just two, um, that I thought were sad. And frankly, they really ticked me off too, but they were sad. One was a mockery of prayer. And it was frankly mocking every religion mentioned in that prayer in the name of tolerance. And the other one that was sad was an insurrection attempted in the name of a politician. So I ask, and I think a lot of people are asking, why did these things happen? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons. There's a whole bunch of build-up, and we can discuss, and many people are discussing. But fundamentally, what is happening is that this is what happens when people worship the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. In other words, what we see, and this just happens to be in public, what we see is people setting their sights too low. One thought that tolerance was a high enough sight, the other thought a president was a high enough sight. What does God's word say? There is so much greater a sight. To see. And we, here, our lives aren't on national television. If they are, it's usually not a good thing. <laughs> not, I don't know if anybody was, set, was put in their yearbook as most likely to be seen on TV. That's <laughs> Take that for what you will. But we, in our, in our private lives, who do we live for? What do we live for? Who do we live for when we see or hear such things on the news? What or who do we live to see most when the house is dark and no one else is awake? When we think no one else is watching? Who do we live for when we drop the kids off at school, when we're driving alone in our vehicle across straight mile after straight mile and the mind begins to wander? When we roll into work tomorrow morning, who are we living for? When we're sitting across the table with someone we don't like or see them at the store or maybe someone we really like, who do we live for? Who do we set our sights on? Because this question matters not just for today, but for eternity. Who must we live to see? That's the question. Well, God is merciful, isn't he? Because he hasn't left that question unanswered for us. That's what we're going to look at today. So would you stand as we look in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You may have a seat. Who must we live to see? We must live to see Jesus. In this text today, Jesus is in Jerusalem in the last week of his life, the week of Passover. And in this text, something amazing happens. Someone is setting their sights at the right spot, setting their sights high. And it's people who we wouldn't, no, who wouldn't be normally be thought of. Greeks. Greeks. That could mean proselytes, God-fearers, perhaps, or, Greeks were curious people, it could just be some pagans in town checking out the Passover. But in the midst of the hubbub and the potential threat of remotely being associated with Jesus, Because the establishment at that time wants him dead. Remember that. These people came wanting to see Jesus. Do you want to see Jesus? We must live to see Jesus. But here's the question. Did they really see him? Do we see him? And how do we get a life that lives to see Jesus? That life comes through a few things in this text. First, we see that life comes through glory. This is interesting, isn't it? These Greeks come to see Jesus. So what do they do? They go to Philip, perhaps because Philip was from a region that bordered Greek-speaking towns or because Philip is a Greek name. And Philip doesn't seem to be quite sure what to do, but he, so he goes to Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus. Jesus up to this point hasn't had a whole lot of interactions with non-Jewish people. Some, but he's usually been the one to initiate them. But here, the pagans are coming to him. Him who was in the last passage we looked at last week is called the king of Israel. They're coming to him in in this passage. So Philip grabs Andrew, and he and Andrew go to Jesus with their request. And what happens? We're never told if the Greeks ever see Jesus. Are we? Because Jesus answers them, and presumably that's both... That's at least Philip and Andrew, maybe the Greeks with them. But we're also not told that Jesus refused to see them, and that's important. What are we told instead? First, that there is an hour for glory. Verse 23, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this is why this is so important that these Greeks show up because they, however in God's providence, that is the signal that Jesus' hour has come. There's been threads building up in Jesus' life and ministry and it all ties into into what Jesus calls this hour, this last period of Jesus' life. And it's no longer future, it's right there. It's like that final quarter in the state or national championship. It's the hour for glory. But whose glory? Second, there is a man for glory. Because Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be lifted up. That's interesting that he uses that. He doesn't always use that in this gospel. We've looked at this a couple times But this comes, again, to just jog our memories, from Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man would be given, it says, Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus uses the title Son of Man here because not just Jews are wanting to see him, but people from the nations, like that prophecy says, are coming to see him too. Jesus, this Son of Man, is not just for the Jews. He's for the whole world, and that's great news for us because I don't think there's a single one of us here this morning that's, a, that's Jewish. But if these Greeks really want to see Jesus, if we want to live to see Jesus, there must not only be a man for glory, he must actually be glorified. Thirdly, there must be glory for glory. The hour has come for the Son of Man, verse 23 says, to be glorified. Now, You might intuitively know what that means, having been in church for a long time. But what does it mean? What is glory? At least in worldly terms, sometimes it means success or a magnificent achievement. But again, God's word calls us to look higher, to look to him. What are some of the ways that God talks about glory in his word? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's the kind of thing that takes our breath away when we look up at the night sky and it's the kind of thing that takes our breath away when we see, as Isaiah did, where he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and the burning angels crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What is glory? Glory is about God being God. And Jesus is the son of man who is the son of God. All of his perfection, all of his attributes, every awesome thought that we can have about God, that is encapsulated by the term glory. And Jesus is about to be glorified. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God the Son of God, is about to be glorified. It means that God's about to be seen for who He really is. It means that God's intentions are about to be realized and seen. It means that God is going to be worshipped as God. And Jesus says the hour has come for Him to be glorified. Now, this is huge because if if Jesus is not glorified, if he is not worshipped as God, if he is not seen and believed as who he is, there's no life to see him. If you do not live to see Jesus, you will not see him as he is. Life comes through glory. We must live to see Jesus. So how do we get a life that lives to see Jesus? That leads to the great question we haven't answered yet. Jesus says that He's going to be glorified, but how? How is he going to be glorified? Did God in the flesh come into the city of Jerusalem and call fire down from heaven on top of the holy of holies in the temple and then become glorified? Did He start a coup against the Romans so that they fell at His feet and, surrender, and surrendering their weapons? Is that how He was glorified? How was Jesus glorified? And how do we get the life that comes from him being glorified? Secondly, life comes through death. Because Jesus says, The Son of Man, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he goes on in verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, and that's that, Amen, Amen, pay attention to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. How is Jesus glorified? By dying. Whose death brings life? Jesus' life. Jesus' death brings life. He gives this illustration, which we live in the perfect area to understand this. You tell this in a city on the coast, might do have to do a little more explaining, but here we do millions, billions, trillions of seeds a year. Throw them into the soil. The breadbasket of America, the Cornhusker Nation, or State, Kernels of grain drop into the ground and die, but from their death, we get rich fields. The grace of God providing the harvest season. The grain dies to produce much fruit, and this is Jesus. Christianity is unique because we have a God who is glorified not by grabbing all he can from humanity that must appease him, but by dying in their place because they don't have life without him. Do you know that you don't have life apart from Jesus? There is no crop. There is no salvation unless the grain dies. Unless Jesus dies. And How should we respond to this? We should rejoice. This might seem like an awful thing, but we, the people of God, should rejoice that we worship a God who is glorified on a cross. We should never, ever, ever be ashamed of the cross. In our singing, in our praying, in our preaching, in our teaching, it is His glory. It is essential to the gospel, the good news. There is no fruit unless there's a cross. What to the world looked like utter failure on the part of Jesus? What kind of God would let himself be strung up and nailed to a cross? That's utter failure in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of God, it's the Utter victory that we can bank our lives on. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says it this way, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then verse 10 it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's the fruit part, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What a cost for Jesus. Let's not ever get over this, of how much God had to humble himself to suffer and die to take away his wrath upon us. To take our sins from us. To take our condemnation from us. To take Satan's ground for accusing us from us. God humbling himself so that rebellious sinners against him the Bible calls us the enemies of God apart from the salvation of Jesus Christ. That rebellious sinners will be granted not death, but life. His righteousness. But be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God forever. And that we would receive fruit. We would be the fruit. We would receive joy and blessing, eternal life forever, set free from all that enslaves us. Life comes through death. This is how he's glorified. The love of God. Think about what happened and what you see at the cross. The love of God. The mercy of God. The justice of God. The promises of God. The plan of God. The life of God. The holiness of God. The victory of God. And so much more is displayed right at that moment in the grain falling into the soil the death of the Son of God. And this is how we must live to see Jesus. The Apostle Peter said very plainly in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Life comes through death. Philippians 2 verse 6 says that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that passage says that Jesus became a servant. Did you catch that? and the servant went to the cross. Well, what does it mean for us that life comes through glory, that life comes through death? If we would live to see Jesus, finally we need to see that life comes through service. Jesus goes on in verse 25 and he says, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, when we are rescued by Jesus, by his glory, his death, and his service, our trusting him makes us servants too. You look across the Bible, the people of God always, almost always refer to themselves as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, Jude, a servant of Jesus, James, servant of Jesus, over and over and over again. So here's the question. What does a servant do? Well, from this text we see that a servant of Jesus dies as well. He continues from the illustration of the grain falling into the ground to whoever whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. As Linda mentioned, Jesus is our example. Life comes through service. And service to Jesus means we must die to ourselves to live to see Jesus. Here's a question. Why does it say that, of all things it could say about service to Jesus? Why does it say we must die to ourselves to live to see Jesus? I really struggled with this text today. Someone asked me, how are you doing? And I said, it's really hard to practice what you preach. Why does it say this? Because we are consumed with us. We think about us almost from the moment we wake up to when we go to sleep. And we are told day in and day out that the solution to our problems is that we just don't love ourselves enough. If we loved ourselves enough, they say, we would finally be happy, finally be fulfilled. What does this passage say? It warns us that if you do that, if you try to love yourself enough, valuing yourself, your comforts, your things, your reputation, your relationships, your work, anything in this life above God and his revealed will, you are going to lose your life. Why? Because you can't see Jesus, who is supposed to be our life, if we're just staring at ourselves all the time. And staring at ourselves is not believing Jesus. It's believing ourselves. Jesus said the greatest commandment was not to love yourself, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means we are to be using and submitting everything in our lives, our moments, our resources, our person, our emotion, our personality, to serve Him. That's why He's given you what He's given you whether you think that's a lot or nothing. Now, this doesn't mean that we just let ourselves go to waste. It definitely doesn't mean we should all consider suicide. No. God wants life for his image bearers. And many of the things that we do on a daily basis can be used to glorify God. But have they taken the place of God's service to you? Are they done knowing that God gets the final say? Like I said, we have to die to ourselves in order to be able to practice what I just preached. A servant of Jesus dies as well. But secondly, a servant of Jesus follows Jesus. If anyone serves me, he says in verse 26, he must follow me. So how do we follow Jesus? First, it's simple. We believe him. You will not follow someone you don't believe in or trust. Not willingly. Secondly, as part of believing, we must die to ourselves as we've seen. And third, we must do as he's done. We don't save anyone in our service to Jesus. Salvation belongs to God. He is responsible for the results. But... We, as his servants, bring the same gospel that he brought and the same gospel that saved us to the world that Jesus came to. We also might say, Well, Jesus isn't physically here. How do I serve him? One pastor I read pointed, out to, pointed to Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, where the king will answer them Truly, as I, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least. Of these, my brothers, you did it to me. How do we serve Jesus when he's not physically here? We care for his church. We're also to care for the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the single mom. God has said to do said that his people do that all over the scriptures. We're to follow Jesus into ministry that is easy. Sometimes it is just wonderfully easy to bless people. And we're to follow Jesus also into ministry that's hard. Sometimes, again, you have to die to yourself to love some people in this world. A servant of Jesus follows Jesus wherever he goes. But, please, 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 this is a temptation. Don't ever view this service as just for service sake. Christianity is not stoicism, it's not pragmatism, it's not a grin and bear it just because. God has a much greater motivation for service. Do you see it in this text? Thirdly, a servant of Jesus is honored like Jesus. Look again at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. how are we honored like Jesus? Well, first, we see that the servant of Jesus is guaranteed to be with Jesus. There is no better place for us to be, church, than to be with Jesus. That's our hope. And Jesus says that if we serve him, following him, we will be where he is. And we are to understand that in two ways. First, Jesus' promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is always with us. And we are always with him by faith. But secondly, and we'll get to this later on, but you know it, he is preparing a place for us to dwell with him forever. That's what he's gone to do. The book of Revelation describes this new place as a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, a new earth where sin and sorrow will be no more. And he tells us, if you follow me, that's where you're going because that's where I am. Bank everything on his promise and what he's done. And he also says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Stephen Covey has a maxim. He says, live with the end in mind. Do you live to be honored by your heavenly father? It should burn within the fabric of our being as followers of Jesus Christ to hear what the character who represented God said in what's called the parable of the talents. We should desperately want to hear this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This should be the end we desire. This should be the end we desire after we leave here today. This should be the end we desire Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, over and over again until the Lord takes us home or comes back. A servant of Jesus is honored like Jesus. Life comes through service. And because of what the king has done to serve us, it's amazing that we get the privilege to serve him. We must live to see Jesus. So I want to ask a question from this text. How were these Greeks remembered? We don't know their names. But they were not remembered for praying in the name of intolerance masquerading as tolerance. They were not remembered for sitting in the Speaker of the House's office. They are remembered across the world, the world, over thousands of years. They are remembered as those who came and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And if they didn't see him immediately then, they certainly saw him for who he was when he was glorified. Who do you live for? Who do I live for? The good news is is that we today can turn to him and live to see him today. No matter what or who it is we have lived to see or lived for before this moment. Just look to him. All the Greeks did, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You think that's the kind of prayer that God would answer? God, I want to see Jesus. You think he'd say no? He wants you to see Jesus. We must live to see Jesus. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus when the world just starts spinning in ways that we never thought it would. We want to see Jesus when we failed. To know that there is hope to get back up and keep running the race. We want to see Jesus. And we want others to see Jesus, Lord. And you know what that requires. You know that there are days, and I remember hearing this, Lord, there there are going to be days maybe more than not where we're going to wake up, Lord, and we're not going to want to die to ourselves. But I pray, Lord, that we would pray in that moment, God, I don't want to die to myself, so I need your help to die today so that I can live for you. Thank you that you don't call us to anything you haven't already been through. And you went through the worst of it and you receive the best of it. Praise you, Lord. Praise you that we follow a God who has done believable things. Oh, Lord, shape us to be more like Jesus as we see him.